The vicious voices of the right are out in full force, and it's time for us to get up and organize against the heartless attacks on our civil rights. Start your morning diving into the headlines and issues that matter to our everyday lives, speaking with changemakers and hearing from you, our listeners. Hear your host, Zerlina Maxwell, break down the top news, push for solutions from officials who represent us, and call out the misinformation and hypocrisy that surrounds us, plus the engaging stories that keep you energized. Get your morning boost of politics, culture, and everything you need to start your day. It's always darkest before the dawn, but the dawn is here. Shining a light on the ruthless forces across the aisle and rising for a brighter future for all of us. This is Mornings with Zerlina. Welcome to Mornings with Zerlina. I'm Zerlina Maxwell. Joining us today to talk about Ukraine is probably one of the best people in the country to do so. Evelyn Farkas is here. She was in the Obama administration working on specifically Russia and Ukraine, so is the perfect person to talk to about this. Thank you so much for being here today. Well, thanks for having me, Zerlina. Yes, I was um, under President Obama, Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense, responsible for Russia and Ukraine. So the first wave of that war in 2014, 2015 had me um, scurrying back and forth from the Pentagon and the White House. So I do know a fair bit about um, how to help the Ukrainians. And um, and I am equally worried right now. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of different threads I've been um, you know, following throughout the course of this week and even last week, um, you know, obviously the focus and attention here in the United States has been on obviously our gun gun problem um, with the slate of mass shootings and Jan 6 coming up tomorrow. But Ukraine is very much um, still a fluid situation. We have sent, I think, six different, I think there's six different um, packages were approved um, of weapon shipments and in aid. Um, and additional aid was just sent over. But then also I'm following the thread of President Zelensky saying we need more. We're, we're in for a dire winter, fall and winter. So lay out for us um, some of the things that you're paying attention to right now on the ground in terms of Russia's progress as, you know, most of the fighting has been concentrated in the southeastern part of the country. But that's that has changed, actually in the last week. Yeah, I mean, so just, you know, quickly for listeners, obviously Ukraine uh, beat back Russian attempts to invade its capital, Kyiv, and basically to take over the country in that fashion. Now the Russians have readjusted and they, they are saying they're just taking a corridor, a land corridor linking Russia to Crimea through Ukraine and essentially trying to block Ukraine off from access to the sea, um, which has global ramifications. I just want to say that there are five countries in Africa in particular, um, highly reliant on grain coming from Ukraine and Russia um, that are going to see starvation and um, food depredation increasing. Um, So this has global implications um, in terms of you know, food and humanitarian considerations, but also, you know, Ukraine is fighting for the right to its sovereignty and to control its borders. And and that has implications that are international because certainly other countries who would like to challenge borders like China are watching. So the the fighting right now to get to the, the your question, the fighting right now is really ugly. It's 
they're in a phase now where the Russians have an, a tactical advantage. So on the ground, in the field, they have an advantage because they have this brutal long range artillery. They're basically just shredding cities and towns, pulverizing mm -hmm. them. And then the Russians can get their forces to advance. The Russian forces won't advance as long as there are Ukrainians in the cities and towns to shoot at them. They're afraid of the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians right now lack the artillery to fight back. We, we, the United States, we announced that we're going to provide them with better, longer range, more capable artillery and a multiple rocket launchers to help them defend themselves from the Russian artillery. But that's unfortunately taking a little bit of time to get into the field because the Ukrainians need to be trained with these weapons. So there seems to be this constant lag in our assistance to mm. Ukrainians, unfortunately. Um, Having said that, I think they do still have the advantage. You know, time time is critical. We need to get in there and provide more and provide it fast so that the Ukrainians can push the Russians back. The only way Vladimir Putin is going to stop this aggressive foreign policy is if he's defeated in the battlefield. What does defeat look like for Vladimir Putin? I mean, obviously his response and the Kremlin's response to the news of us um, providing longer range missiles was that, you know, we're escalating things. And that, that, you know, that's a provocation. Um, but in terms of winning and losing, you know, I don't know that, I, I mean, you know better than I do. It doesn't seem like Vladimir Putin is the kind of person that would admit that he has lost. Um, <laughs> and so, so what does that look like? And, and how, how much of a factor is it that like anything we do is going to be seen as provocation from his perspective, um, you know, because he's Vladimir Putin? Yeah, I mean, so first of all, this idea that we're provoking them. I mean, let's just remember that they are the biggest provocateurs. They chose to wage this disgusting, brutal, you know, violating human rights war against Ukraine. And, and they use that word because they're trying to scare us. They're trying to scare us into limiting the assistance we give Ukraine, because of course they know that we can provide them with increasing assistance. The, the, the thing is that if they overplay their hand and get quote unquote provoked to the point where they make a misstep, they know that they risk also us getting more involved. Mm -hmm. And if God forbid they use nuclear weapons, I believe we would get directly involved because that would be breaking a taboo that's existed since Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And the international community would have to say Vladimir Putin can't stay in the Kremlin. But mm. ultimately what's going to happen, Zerlina, is this, you have to kind of, unfortunately, there's no better comparison than a leader like Hitler because because Vladimir Putin is fixated in his mind on this idea of winning and this neo-imperial Russia, and he can't back down. And so he's going to mm. keep trying to play for time. But if he gets defeated on the battlefield, his military has to go to him and say, look, we're defeated. We, we don't have another movement, boss. And at that point, I think if he doesn't relent, then the elites around him, the military, they will make sure that he's replaced. I mean, they, if they don't have troops to fight, he can't make them fight. Mm. That's actually a really, really interesting point. I mean, I think it reminds me a little bit of what Bill Browder said to us a few few months ago, um, which is that Putin only escalates, right? So, like, from his perspective, you know, he he's not going to be like, well, it looks like, uh, you know, I should back down a little bit because, you know, I'm ahead of my skis. Like, I just don't feel like that's an impulse that um, Vladimir Putin has. Such a strange thing to try to get inside of his mind. But you mentioned the nuclear threat, and that's another topic that, I think people, we want to ignore it. We want to pretend that it's not actually real. But, you know, he did, he's repeatedly, and, and representatives from the Kremlin have repeatedly brought it up. 
um, as as a threat, frankly. Um, is it real? How real? I mean, it's real in the sense that, look, they have nuclear weapons. They have a lower threshold towards, towards use in their military doctrine. They can actually use it to scare the opponent off the battlefield. But oh. Vladimir Putin and his advisors have to know that yeah. if he were to break the taboo, and it's not just the United States that would be outraged, the Europeans would be outraged, the Japanese would be outraged. I mean, the international community would not stand by and say, oh, you broke the taboo. I know they broke the chemical weapons taboo in Syria, and frankly, we didn't respond properly. But I think it's a different story with nuclear. And in that case, we would say, you cannot have that man in the Kremlin. You cannot have a leader in power who is willing to use nuclear weapons, even if it's just a demonstration explosion in Siberia. And you know, I say just um, because, of course, that would cause an immense damage to the environment and to people. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I think that he has to know that it would change the dynamic, and Russia would no longer be allowed to prevail over Ukraine under such a scenario. So it would change things that maybe we wouldn't use nuclear weapons, which our doctrine calls for us. We could respond in kind, right? That's how deterrence mm-hmm. works. We should be behind the scenes now telling the, the Russians, you use nuclear weapons, we can use them too, don't forget. And I'm sure we are doing that. But realistically, if you think about our president and our country, if the Russians do a demonstration nuclear bomb, we're not going to use nuclear weapons to attack them. But what we will do is use every every conventional means at our our disposal to make sure that Vladimir Putin is removed from the Kremlin. Mm. And we have a lot of conventional means and we don't have to put troops on the ground and we can do all kinds of things to, you know, even pressure. But but certainly we would retaliate in some probably conventional military form. Do you think it's possible to remove him from the Kremlin? Would 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 he leave? Well, I think with enough military and political pressure from the West, mm. he would have to. I you mean, know, at a certain I, point, the Russian I'd be curious also... to see, like, who's going to go in and tell him? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, again, I think it's the it's got to be the Russian military. It's got to mm-hmm. be some part of the Russian establishment. We, you know, some of us have thought, well, maybe it would be the Siloviki, the kind of intelligence security operational people around him who were his buddies. But they may, there are some accounts that his national security advisors as, you know, rabidly revanchist, nationalistic, you know, as Putin. So, but there are people, you know, in Russia who don't want the don't want the situation to get radically worse and do want to salvage their their state and frankly their republic which is still a large republic made up of many multinational entities let's not forget you know chechnya dagestan i mean it's a it's it's you know what is it 13 time zones mm-hmm. you know it's a tremendous territory and in the east there's less support for for vladimir putin than in the west you know centered around moscow in terms of um, the, you mentioned already um, the the food supply. So one of the things that it, um, sort of through the the analysis of of maps um, throughout the course of the last couple of months, um, I've grown to understand sort of how the fighting, um, you know, where where geographically it's taking place. As you mentioned, that you know, trying to create that land corridor um, to Crimea, um, but also I've noted that they're attacking port cities and and trying to take over port cities. How does all of this strategically sort of um, these moves by Russia, you know, 
why, you know, attack these port cities? What strategic advantage um, does that provide for them? And is that what is sort of creating this back backlog and, and shortage in the, in the global food supply that you mentioned earlier? Yeah, absolutely. That is the case. And this is very deliberate on the part of the Russians. Um, you put your finger on a really important component of their war against Ukraine and, and frankly, the world, because the Russians are deliberately trying to choke off Ukraine's economy. And the Ukraine is a large grain exporter. It provides about 10% of the world's wheat. Um, I already mentioned those African and also there are Middle Eastern countries like Egypt heavily dependent on wheat from Ukraine. Um, and, and together, Russia and Ukraine, again, provide about a quarter of the total grains, so wheat plus other grains, to the world economy. The Russians are preventing Ukrainian ships from getting out with the grain. The grain was held in silos, was ready to be sent out to the world markets um, when the war um, started. And the, and the new harvest needs to be put into those silos, so they have to be emptied. Um, the Russians captured Mariupol, that's an important port, and they are now working to try to transform Mariupol into a Russian port. They are still holding out, Ukrainians are still holding out in Odessa, which is their largest and most important port with Black Sea access. And of course, the Russians would like to seize that as well. I believe that the international community needs to mount a coalition of the willing to go and assert the right to freedom of navigation, not just for Ukraine, but all countries in the Black Sea, and that we need to get in there and provide a safe corridor for those grains to get out of Ukraine immediately. Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't understand why the United Nations, why the international community isn't doing more on this front. Um, this and the nuclear front, and when I mean nuclear, I mean um, nuclear energy front in Ukraine, because that's another international threat that's ongoing right now with the Russians shooting again very close to one of the largest nuclear energy facilities in Ukraine. So I, I am um, gobsmacked, astounded, disgusted at the lack of international action, at least that I can see so far mm -hmm. um, on these issues. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's such an interesting point because, and you mentioned the United Nations. Why, why don't I hear more about what they're doing? Because <laughs> I hear a more lack people. Of... Yeah, I hear people saying that UN should be doing, but I don't hear a, a lot of news about them doing stuff. <laughs> There's a lack of leadership. I mean, yeah. they did take a general look. You can't do much because of the with the Security Council because the Russians have a seat in the Security mm -hmm. Council. Interestingly, the Ukrainians are contesting that now. They're saying, "Well, why did the international community hand the seat to the Russian Federation rather than another part of the Soviet Union when it fell apart?" Which is a kind of interesting argument. Mm -hmm. um, not 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 too far off base. I mean, basically, it, you know, I think it had more to do with Moscow and the Western bias, but. Um, in any event, um, what what we see now is that the General Assembly did take a vote, you know, condemning the latest phase of this war, as they did earlier in 2014, when Russia seized Crimea and started the war in Donbas. But they haven't called for any other action. And the General Assembly certainly can call for other action. And the UN agencies have called for action, but they've done nothing to actually deliver. There's a great, and I think on a little bit exaggerated fear of Russia. Yes, Russia has arms and Russia could prevent the UN and Russia did shoot a UN convoy in 2015 in Syria. So we can't forget that there is a real danger to UN lives if Russia does, 
you know, use their military to prevent them from taking action. But on the other hand, some things are worth daring the Russians. And that's why I, I'm disappointed in, in the international community. Yeah, I mean, it, it feels like, you know, well, along the lines of the Putin only escalates, I feel like he's only escalated and people have been like, We're, you know, don't escalate any further, We're really going to do something about it. And then he just <laughs> continues to do it. And then nobody's, you know, holding him to account. I know it's it's complicated. Nothing in foreign policy is simple. I was an international relations major and I was like, this is hard. I'm going to go to law school. Because, <laughs> you know, there's a, there's a lot of moving pieces here. Um, and, you know, it, we're talking about uh, complicated issues that, you know, have gone through generations. Right? We're talking about decades and decades of, of moving pieces. One of the last questions I had um, we have four more minutes, but one of the last questions I have, and one of the things I've been following really closely from the beginning because I'm obsessed with like cybersecurity, um, uh-huh. which is the the looming sort of threat of a cyber attack. I I read last week where our government is you know taking steps to you know proactively prevent and you know stave off any type of cyber attack coming from Russia. But you know we we mentioned the nuclear threat, and everybody sort of pays attention to that for good reason. But the cyber threat feels more real to me, um, mm-hmm. particularly if uh, they're put in a corner or, you know, they're, quote unquote, losing at any point um, and momentum really shifts dramatically. How real is that threat? I mean, is that something you're you're sort of following? You know, what what signs will we get, if any, that that's happening? <laughs> yeah. I mean, Zerlina, I'd say that one is a, a, there is more danger there that they will take cyber action. But on the other hand, just as with the nuclear or actually even more so than nuclear, we I'm told by all of our experts in the government that we have better cyber capabilities, defensive and offensive than the Russians. So this may be a case where we, you know, talked up the Russian capabilities um, over time. Because <laughs> of the know. election in 2016. <laughs> well, yes. And, and, and of course, those capabilities were you know, impressive. And, and, you know, we can't, we can't deny that, but that was also a lot of, you know, social media and, and, and what, what, what you're talking about is more of an attack that might disrupt commerce, you know, take down wall street mm-hmm. or some other, that's the one, that's the one, that's the one it's, that it keeps me up at night. I'm, I gotta exactly. be honest, it, it, you know, because I, somebody said it was a cyber, somebody said in the New York times a while back, cyber, a cyber nine 11. And I yeah. was like, oh, if they like, you know, took down bank of America, which then would just sort of take down everything. And then you're like, I can't get money. So I, you know, my brain goes there and, and I feel scared when I, when I think about it for too long, but I feel like that the infrastructure piece is what you're saying. Yeah, but that but this is something where I've even witnessed and been impressed by how our government has been much more proactive this time around. You know, we we sent our cyber czar over to London. You know, we conferred with allies. We've been conferring with business. I think that we are much better positioned to defend and respond. And again, I think the Russians know that we have like no kidding hardcore capabilities. If they go too far, we can counter. So, you know, I think that maybe we have achieved some level of cyber deterrence, at least for the moment with the Russians. I hope that's I hope that's true. And I I mean, I I think that, you know, um, I think we did talk them up, you know, because I think I mean, when we think about the 2016 election, you know, the cyber sort of hacking piece of it is, you know, a big part of what we talk about. But we, we also should 
I always call it a hacking and propaganda campaign. It wasn't just exactly. hacking. It was like mm-hmm. taking the emails and then like leaking a thousand a day every day, a month out. Um, you know, up to the election, like every day of October, there were 2000 more Podesta emails like that is the propaganda piece of it. The site, I I think like hacking someone's email using sort of that social engineering of, you know, sending them, you know, a phishing email. That's not like super, you know, high level cyber capability. That's that's simply sort of understanding humans, um, (laughs) human human behavior. in terms of what you're following in the last minute here, um, in the next couple of weeks, everybody I'm reading is saying that the next couple of weeks are like really, really critical. And we only have one more minute, but what are some of the, the central things you're you're sort of looking? Are you looking at Kiev now that it's being bombed again? What are what are the threads you're you're following? I mean, I really am uh, focused on Donbass, Odessa. I'm always watching Odessa. Mm. Um, I'm focused on what's happening with the equipment going into Ukraine. We need to get it in there as soon as possible. That's that's gotta be the number one focus. Um, Ukrainians are losing lives at an alarming rate. Their morale is still, you know, holding on and they'll, they right. will throw the every last woman and child in there. Yep, yep. Um, but we we owe it to them to get help to them as soon as possible. Absolutely. This has been a really helpful conversation and helping us understand the latest in Ukraine and all of the analysis. Evelyn Farkas, thank you so much for being here. We, we love to have you. I love talking to you, answering all of my questions, all of my fears and worries. Um, thank you again. Please stay Thanks, safe. Thanks, Selena. Anytime. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Zerlina. Check in for new episodes every weekday. 